Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm delighted to be joined by Chris McKeon today. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you so much for having me again, Mark. Good to see you. Uh, so your novel, Times Champion, has been reprinted in the style of a Target book and is available to order from Telus Publishing. Uh, this is to raise money for the British Heart Foundation. Yes. Second it's, time around. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lovely book. I've, uh, I've got my copy here. Um, it's, uh, it's got the cover by Alistair Pearson, which, yes. is, uh, which is stunning. really like that. Um, I guess, I guess having a Target book uh, with your name on it is a dream come true for a lot of Doctor Who fans. Were the Target books a big part of your childhood? No, not a bit. Um, even now, they are, they're, one the, they're one of the sectors of Doctor Who that are fairly... They're known to me by reputation. They're known to me by a lot of the information within them. And they intrigue me, and I would like to, to read them. The the old... They're very the in, the target novelizations come to me interesting because I found out about them, of course. The only but they were being printed long before I was around or you know into Doctor Who. My entrance into them is funny because the only ones that I actually have, apart from Remembrance of the Daleks, I have that one. But the only ones that I have are the are the uh, Missing Adventures, meaning the Nightmare Fair, the Ultimate Evil, and Mission to Magnus. Because after I started watching Doctor Who for the first time, you know, I'm growing up with both the uh, classic series and the new series almost simultaneously. Almost. Classic series came a little before, but pretty close to each other. Kind of have that unique Doctor Who youth watching experience. But as I started to, you know, go and uh, visit Doctor Who sites and do my own initial exploration out there in the cosmos, so to speak, I, uh, I discovered that there were, you know, missing adventures, but, uh, uh, you know, books that were being made, but what I also discovered is that there were various Doctor Who television stories that were never um, uh, produced, mainly in the Colin Baker era, the original season 23, and I was very intrigued to find that some of them may have been made into books, and so I, they had been published long before, but I happened to find on eBay uh, copies of the Nightmare Fair, the Ultimate Evil, and uh, Mission to Magnus. So I read those. So those, um, and I found also a copy of Remembrance of the Daleks. So those are the f- only four tar- Target novels that I have. But I, I know that they are a huge part of other people's childhoods. Probably more so in uh, in your country and and in probably in Europe, maybe all over. But um, I mean, you don't, you've never, s- you, they maybe are available available here but uh, not for someone like me no so no they're not not much of a ch- part of my childhood and um so it's written by uh, you and craig hinton um how did the book come about in the first place oh um a, quite a long time ago when i was little kid in the mid 2000s um again probably right around the time that i've just described when i discovered the those particular target novelizations I was. Star- I also discovered the existence of the Valayard. Now, I like simplicity, and so I like the idea of an incorruptible hero like the Doctor, an irredeemable villain like the Master. The idea of something like the Valayard just really shook me. Uh, not just because, oh, he's this whatever he is, you know, amalgamation of the darker sides of such, but that there was no closure to his character on screen. Again, I, I watching the episodes, and I knew I thought that I had seen everything. Then I learned about the trial of a time lord. I learned about the Valayard. I learned that there's nothing. Now the thing that you have to understand is, for any readers or viewers now of 
Doctor Who. And if they're into Big Finish, now if they want to learn about the Valayard, they can they can watch the Trial of a Time War. They can listen to Trial of the Valayard. They can listen to the Sixth Doctor, the Last Adventure. They can listen to um, the Bernice Summerfield audio, Every Dark Thought. They can listen to uh, Time War Volume Three, The War of Valayard. In the mid two thousands, or even earlier, there was the Trial of a Time War. That's it. That's it. And one other thing. Well, there. So, but well, before I get to what else is there, let's just say there's the trial of a time war. So, and this, the Valayard becomes keeper of the Matrix. Well, that drove me nuts. I'm a very exploratory person. I, I like to explore things. When there's nothing else to explore, and it's just, oh, he's the keeper of the Matrix. I thought, I thought to myself, well, wouldn't that mean he's going to take over Gallifrey? <laughs> wouldn't that mean he take over all of all of time and space? Wouldn't that mean he try to kill the Doctor? Especially after I, actually, I watched the trial of a Time Lord in detail, I thought, this guy's not going to stop. So what, where, does, where is he now? Well, um, I became obsessed, really, with, um, with the idea of the Valley Guard. And, and no joke, because I learned about the Colin Baker's missing unmade stories, I also became obsessed with yellow fever and how to cure it. <laughs> but um, uh, that, Just because that was the only other target um, lost story that I knew about, that, and that wasn't novelized. I hadn't heard of it, The Hollows of Time or The Children of January yet. But So I, I just started trying to learn everything I could about the Valayard, and I can tell you just about exactly what was around at that time, at least before my time in the 90s. There was um, a lot of strange stuff being done by the Virgin novels. Um, in a nutshell, it seemed like there were a bunch of links in a chain going forward in time for the Sixth Doctor, going backwards in time for the Seventh, meaning that the Sixth Doctor is thinking a lot about the Valayard in books like Time of Your Life, which is like the first one, first Doctor Who novel explicitly set after the trial of a time war. He's thinking about the Valayard and then kind of its follow-up novel, Killing Ground. These are virgin novels from the mid-90s. Then you get Craig Hinton's novel Millennial Rights which famously has on the cover a very dark picture of Colin Baker. Again, an Alistair Pearson cover, but he's wearing the Valayard's costume. Now, that's very cool. For someone like me, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, and I read Millennial Rights. I actually got a copy of it. Well, it doesn't really feature the Valayard. In a nutshell, it's just a reality-bending story where it kind of features the Yeti, kind of features some other entity, but they, from different po points of the universe, they come together on the um, New Year's Eve 1999 and warp reality and during the reality warp the Doctor starts to transform into the Valayard. He still looks like the Doctor except at the very end. But at the very end of that story he, the Doctor to put away the Valayard has a kind of a mental encounter with the Valayard. And the Valayard indicates that there's a great storm coming that uh, will shake the base of creation. That's all he says. But it's a cool little interaction between the Sixth Doctor and the Valayard. And at the very end of the story, I should say that it was kind of a setup for the Seventh Doctor because the Sixth Doctor's thinking about himself and the Valayard, and he thinks of himself as some great chess master with pieces of his, his companions as pawns on a great cosmic chessboard. He says, oh, that'll be the day. It's, of course, the future follow, look forward to the Seventh Doctor. Well, in a nutshell, I just read all these stories that were out there that had little hints about the Valayard, but never featured the Valayard, except for one book called Matrix by Ro Mike Tucker and Robert Perry. Now, I, those are, I really like their authors, but I couldn't stand that interpretation of Valor. Have you ever read that book? I 
think I, I probably did in, in the 90s um, or, or early 2000s it came out. I don't remember it too well. Yeah, came out in 98. I found it sometime afterwards, some years later. It is essentially Seventh Doctor meets Jack the Ripper, but Jack the Ripper is the valet art. Well, but the valet art is only is never called the valet art except to identify who he is. He's called the Ripper, and he's a raving lunatic. I mean, he's a total raving lunatic, madman, bloodthirsty killer. And I don't really know what his intentions were to kill to killing those women. And he's creating golems of creatures that are, you know, you know, made of clay, but they might house the spirits of the previous doctors or all of them or something. It's very gothic and very dark, but for someone like me, again, that wants to know about the valet art, I'm screaming inside reading that book because I'm like, this is your one chance. And essentially at the end, he's struck by lightning and killed and his body disappears. Uh, and he's screaming, and the seventh doctor is falling to his knees and scream, moaning, like, oh no, I can't ever become this. I'm like, why are you acting like this? Why are you acting like a child? You're the seventh doctor. You've destroyed Scarrow. You've destroyed countless of worlds. There's all that. <laughs> when I. So, how did a Time's Champion come about? Well, Craig Hinton, of course, wrote Millennial Rights. He wrote a follow up called The Quantum Archangel and the Turn of the Millennium. In the mid 2000s, I've. Again, I'm this young kid, and I find him online. The BBC had its own forum for books, and the authors, the, B, the, B, the Doctor Who book authors, were online, and they would answer questions. And I and I said to him, "Hey, I, I'm really liking, I really like your Doctor Who books. Um, I'd really like to try to. Have you ever thought of doing something with the Valet art? Because maybe with the Six Doctors regeneration? Because like I said, it seemed like there were all these little hints something was going to happen at the end of the Six Doctors' life in the Virgin novels. And then the Seventh Doctor books, like Conundrum and Head Games, they would make all these allusions to the idea, Time of Revelation too, I think, that something happened at the Six Doctors' regeneration that involved the Valayard. And the implication was that the Seventh Doctor somehow came into being before he came into being and orchestrated the Six Doctors' death. And the Six Doctor... In, its, in the worst interpretations, the Sixth Doctor was so mad with rage of being, you know, killed that he actually would become the Valayard. The darkest interpretation is that the Sixth Doctor is the Valayard. I didn't like that idea much, so I, but even so, I said, can we do something about that? And he, and he said, and then he gave me his email address, and we talked, and he was very generous and very kind. And he said, yeah, I, I, I'm actually got... He, at first he said, at first he said, uh... It's an interesting thought to do, but that was kind of what we were doing in the 90s. Um, and the, he, he likened it to stuff that was happening in... That had happened at the time, maybe in the 80s, with, I guess... And I, this is before my time, but Daredevil comics, or comic books, Marvel comics, DC comics. They took their heroes and reinvented them, made them darker. I think Daredevil is a good example or something. The Fall from Grace storyline or something, I don't know, but... I think that's what that's. I remember him saying that. But the point is, he said that's kind of what we were, what was happening then, and what we were kind of trying to explore. But I think th those days have passed. But then he got back to me shortly after, said, "You know what? Whatever. Uh, you've inspired me to try to do it." And that was very kind of him to say. And so he said, "I'm going to. I'm pitching an, a book to the BBC called Time Champion, which will deal with the Six Doctors' regeneration." Now, Big Finish was around, but they were they hadn't only been around for a few years at that point. Um, but then. I guess he had... I never found all the details, but he thought that maybe the... It seems like the book maybe was accepted, but then it was rejected. But it was never clearly done, so he was pretty sad and depressed about that. And I said, well, maybe we could do something about it. So he said, yeah, you know, let's, we could, let's try to work together and maybe get it published online. 
I met Craig uh, once, shortly before his death. Uh, he came to the uh, Gallifrey One Convention in California. I'm, I'm from Los Angeles, so the Los Angeles Convention. So it was just down the street, so to speak, for me. So I met him, and, and we talked for about an hour and a half. And that was a wonderful highlight in my life, just because I'm talking to a Doctor Who author <laughs> uh, who, knew, who was kind of the expert in the ballet art. And I remember, you know, we, I remember him saying, you know, all this stuff about cosmic gods and monsters, that story can write itself. It's going to be, you know, in the vein of Millennial Rights, Quantum Archangel. He said, that stuff's easy to write. What I even, I haven't been able to figure out, saying, this is Craig saying it, was what makes the Valayar tick? What makes him tick? What does he want? And why, what, what would make the Doctor act this way? And so he had to go to a panel, so we said our goodbyes, and as we were walking to the panel, and, and I was going to leave the convention, because, you know, I didn't have a car, I was so young, I didn't, couldn't even drive then, just a little kid. I asked him, so what can you tell me about the Valayard? What, who is he? What, what do we not know? And, he, and I remember when he said this, he says he likes structure, he likes order, he likes, he likes, um, he, he likes uh, predictability. Those are his exact words. He likes structure, he likes order, he likes predictability. He's not a chess player nor is the Sixth Doctor, so don't fall into the cliché of having them play chess or something, because neither one of those are chess players. Uh, he wants... the To him, the universe doesn't need a hero, it needs an administrator. Um, so for him, the idea of righting wrongs and saving the day, that's silly if you just saw... those that small ball, he, want, he would solve it in one large blast. He is a lot like the Seventh Doctor we kind of came to the idea that somehow the Seventh Doctor is like the Valayard in that way. But, um, our plan was to write the story together. Uh, but Craig Hinton died of a heart attack not long afterwards. And so, um, he had a lot of notes that he'd given to me, and I was, that covered what became ultimately like the first half of the book. Um, but then there's me, left, you know, and there, there, it's not his fault at all, but it, but his death meant that it left me alone, of course, in the sense of, well, what do I do now? Uh, how do I finish this story? Because he he ran it up to the point where, essentially, the Matrix is invaded by the Abaddon virus. If you've read the, um, you're reading the assuming you're reading the book, and so there's, it's chaos. But then, it's like, well, how does the Val, he, he did not get to the point where the Valet is revealed. In fact, it, in some of his notes, he, it's, I don't know if he was he liked to write this, the notes, his, his story notes, in a very um, kind of um, conversational style, or at least in a very kind of informative style. And so some of his notes would say, the he, he gave a character list, the doctor, this is how he's feeling. Mel, Melody Bush, this is how she's feeling. Um, in the original version, Stuart Hyde was in the book, from the Time Monster and the Quantum Archangel. Uh, various characters from the Quantum Archangel, it's very much a sequel to the Quantum Archangel. Uh, this is what they're doing now. The book's set in 2008, uh, and, it's, and it's like, what are they doing? And, and then he gets to the end of the list, and says, the Valayard is not in this book. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, oh shoot, <laughs> what's, the, what's the point? Oh my gosh. I knew that the Valayard was going to be in the book. Um, I, think that, I think that was his way of saying that the Valayard is hiding as the keeper of the Matrix. Because again, we this book was being made without all the stuff that Big Finish has done since, so it, it, it's different. Um, but yeah, so I, in the wake of his death, um, I Craig had been posting on the, Gall the old Gallifrey, what is it, Gallifrey One um, outpost, outpost Gallifrey. 
he had been posting saying that he was going to do something with the book and that he had a co-author. He said publicly that he had a co-author. Well, then he died, of course, sadly. And, and then a lot of people were saying, well, now we'll never get that book. And a lot of people were saying that. He wanted Time's Champion. Um, and, um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the risk. So I, I publicly announced myself as the, as the co-author. And right after that, Simon Garrier approached me from Big Finish. They were interested in making Time's Champion um, as a novel, not as an audio. So it was a, it would have, there was a chance it could have been a big finish thing, but Simon was honest. He said, don't hold your breath. We'll have to get permission from the BBC to get a one-off novel license, and they weren't able to do that, so, so that, that couldn't happen. But then David J. Howe of Telos Publishing got a hold of me and said, well, I understand what's happening there, but we can publish this as a novel, um, as a charity novel for the British Heart Foundation. Um, so would, would you be happy to do that? And I said yes, and so that's how the book came about. And I just and then I wrote it. <laughs> and how old were you then? Oh, I'm trying to remember. Preteens, I think. I can't quite remember all the all the years kind of start blurring. Very young. <laughs> so that's uh, that, that's pretty good to to start your first novel at that age. And that's uh, how long did it take you to write it? Mm. took a couple of years. Uh, Craig died in 2000, at the end of 2006, and I hadn't written it. Uh, two, I wrote it through 2007. I wrote it through, oh, it took about a year. In two, I wrote it in, in 2007, and well, and in a little bit into 2008. So, late Tenant years, series four of Tenant, uh, series, series three and four of Tenant, of, of the new series. Um, so that's, that's, that's it, give you a farther context of when I was running, it was the end of the 2000s, you know, 2007 going to 2008. It was published in July of 2008. And the, the reprint that's out now is the same book as the, as the original? Mostly. Um, there is, there is, yes, yes, it is the same book, uh, except the, there's one big difference. The, there was an epilogue written for the first uh, printing that was never... Um, that by printer accident was never included, and that was added on, uh, shown online. Since th this particular, um, uh, this particular um, uh, printing has that epilogue. However, the epilogue has since been changed a bit. Uh, still the same idea, but some a couple di a di uh, a swap a character for another, and so it gives this a different uh, uh, emphasis. But it's the same. But it's the same setting in the epilogue. But yeah, it's the same. It is the same novel. Great. Well, congratulations. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I would recommend it to all our listeners. And um, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a bonus that um, that it fits in, let's say, with all the target books. It's even got a target number on the spine of 157. So uh, I think it sits after the novelizations of Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. I think they're the preceding numbers if you, uh, uh, if you keep them in numerical order. Is that right? I actually, I think most most people keep their target books in story order, um, but ever since I was a kid, I've I've um, kept them in uh, target um, library order number, uh, just because when I was a kid and I didn't have a program guide or anything, I didn't know the order of the stories, so I just made sure all the all the numbers were in sequence, and I've never got out of that habit. Uh, so yeah, this one uh, I know where this one will be um, be sitting in my collection. <laughs> Yeah, it was, I will say it was a joy to write, a wonderful joy to write. I mean, it was um, very emotional. 
because you know I, you know, I'm writing this after Craig's death, and and uh, the novel itself it has Craig's name on the cover, but aside from a couple little, Craig had written a couple little paragraphs, a few paragraphs here or there, very, and when I say a couple, I mean a couple, maybe three or four fragments, and so I included what most of that, but those literally literally are maybe a couple hundred words out of well, more than a hundred thousand, because uh, it's a longer book. Um, at least the original publication is about 400 pages, so it's a lo it's on the longer, very much on the longer side of a Doctor Who. In fact, it might be one of the longest Doctor Who novels. Um, and but I put his, but I added his name because I felt that it was right. I, I, and if you notice on the cover, at least, at least, is it the same on, on yours? What you have there is his name first. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that was that was purposeful. That was that was my choice. I I, I said um, at least I just asked uh, David how to, to put his name first because. Officially, Craig wrote, quote-unquote, nothing. But he, there wouldn't be Time's Champion without Craig Hinton. So his name, it's his, it's his book too, so his name comes first. That's a lovely tribute. And it was a lot of fun. I saw online that there was some plans for an audio adaptation. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. Um... A few years back, I was talking with, uh, you know, so it, I was talking. There was a guy that that did um, that did um, was doing some audio uh, Doctor Who stories, and uh, we we were talking trying about talking about doing that, and we got started working on it, but I since haven't been able to get a hold of the guy. <laughs> so that and that's a few a couple years before I started doing my own stuff, you know, the final game. So. I'm more adept and aware of how to do it now. So the the answer is yes, what you yes and no, fully yes in that but but there are a couple different yeses. Yes, there were intentions. I can't get a hold of the guy that was helping me before and that got some of the auto audio work laid down, so I don't have any of that audio. But I'm going to start working on my own eventually and I will tell you exclusively, I suppose, what my plans are and that I yes, I intend to do an audio adaptation of Times Champion uh, under Black Glove Studio. To do that, however, and ha allow the fans to not not become an, not get lost, because Times Champion, as you're reading it, is very much if you understand what's happening, it's very much dependent upon Craig Hinton's other novels, The Quantum Archangel, and less so Millennial Rights, but certainly The Quantum Archangel. There are a bunch of characters and storylines that are followed up. So if I were to just do a, str a, str a standalone Times Champion novelization, excuse me, adaptation for audio, if I were to be true to the story without making fundamental changes, a lot of people will be left wondering what in the world is happening. So what I'm going to do, my plan is to do an audio adaptation, like Big Finish have done for things like Love and War and Damaged Goods and The Highest Science. I intend to novelize all three of those books. <laughs> so we're going to do Millennial Rights, The Quantum Archangel, Time's Champion. So we're going to do a bunch of Six Doctor stuff. Um, it, 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 so you won't get to see the sixth tier to sixth doctor and the master and all that stuff. But I will say this: if you're anyone that's read Times Champion, the book, like including yourself, I will say this: expect a very different story. Fundamentally the same, sure. But even when I wrote Times Champion, I remember th I was true to the story and Craig's intentions and everything, and they were good and they were it was wonderful. But what I realized is there were two different stories happening there. One involved all the cosmic stuff with, you know, the great old ones, the guardians, and the time lord gods, and all that stuff. 
And as, as I got to know that back history, I realized this is very incoherent. Not Craig's stuff, but this cosmology. There's a reason why Russell T. Davies never used the Guardians. And he publicly said, I don't know how they fit into Doctor Who's cosmology. Because when you think about it, they don't. We don't know what they are. Um, and the great old ones, all their time wars from a previous universe. Well, what does that mean? What, and we don't even know what the Guardians are. We really don't even know what the Time Lord Gods are. But they supposedly are born from Time Lord memories, and they're more powerful than the Guardians, and yet the Guardians are not Time Lords. What does it mean? What are they? So, I, as you and I have talked before about this a little bit, what I will do is... Um, I'm, I will keep all that stuff, but I'm going to very much change the perspective, because even when I wrote Time's Champion... I thought to myself, this is all interesting stuff, but it feels a little like Doctor Who has moved on from this. I remember I'm writing at the, you know, at the end of the 2000s, and I thought, this feels like it's... I get it, but Doctor Who doesn't feel like this anymore. You don't have cosmic gods flying around and, and you know, appearing and blasting the Doctor or things like that. It feels like, never mind post-Time War stuff, but this is stuff you're not going to see on screen. And, and I never liked the idea of, of this separation of, oh, you only see this stuff on screen, you only see this, see this stuff, read this stuff in the books, or, what, or they hear this stuff in the audio. So, well, in a nutshell, without giving it away, what it just simply means is that, um, um, I, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, um, people know that have read Craig Hinton's stuff, that you'll, they'll reference something called the Ancient Covenant. The Ancient Covenant, he references that in the books. That, will, of course, will still be there, but it will mean something else. Um, the nature of Sarquazel from Millennial Rights, uh, he'll be there, but he, he's, he means something else. He is something else. Same intentions. Are, the intentions are the same, but we're going to give you a little more detail. And certainly the big difference will be, and this is the big one, the origins of the Valayard. Even when I wrote the idea in Time's Champion that he's a soul in regeneration, and that he's, whatever happens to him. Because, uh, you know, since it's back, I'll keep it as spoilers now. Um, there are, there's a, what you read in the book, yeah, sure, but it's going to be quite different. That was the one thing I say will be different, fundamentally different. And, um, and w putting it in line with what, what you probably would have seen on screen, and what really would be happening in a Doctor Who story. And... Uh, You'll, there will be a very different... Uh, re, re, uh, consider it this way. You'll hear a radical reinterpretation of the Matrix. And a radical reinterpretation of the Dark Times. And a radical reinterpretation of... Um, of things like... Oh, well, what, what would surprise you? The key to time. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, the, and the creation of the Matrix. And the Guardians. And their relationship to all this. And the Time Lord Gods. Very radical reinterpretation of what they are. Uh, and yet, and yet, because I'm not unaware of stuff, uh, everything that I'm saying about this stuff will be stuff that you've already seen. So it'll be very cool. It'll be very, very, very cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to all those things. It's, it's some years from now, because I've still got a... I'm still writing these other stories. Um, but, as a ta but as a glimpse, I'll, I'll put it this way. I've got a story coming up that I'm about to write, and, and here's a little tease to give you a sense of, you know, the direction these stories are going. Fifth Doctor, Tegan Tolo, on a planet of perfect harmony, and everyone's nice, except everyone's turning into Cybermen. 
and there's a big question of who are the who are the who is the being that these people turn willingly turning into Cybermen. Who who is the being that they worship? Who's running the show? And who and who who is it that's running the show? What are they facing? What is he or she facing in opposition? So there's something interesting there. And yes, it's something. It is something rather white. <laughs> Little guess there. Very intriguing. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and currently, your audio story for the first Doctor and Stephen Taylor and Dodo, the Misshapen Planet, uh, is available. The first three episodes are out now. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find those on YouTube and iTunes. So what can you tell us about this story? This story, um, The Misshapen Planet, um, came, rose out of, again, uh, some of my book reading. Um, when I discovered that there was the monk in Doctor Who, I was very, very surprised, intrigued. And, um, you know, the time, we talk about Peter Butterworth's character from the Time Meddler and um, the Dalek Masterplan. The later episodes of that story. Um, and then when I found out, of course, the monk hadn't reappeared in Doctor Who, I, I, I a little bit like the Valayard or, or such, I became not obsessed, but very interested. You know, again, my early years, trying to find out more about Doctor Who. And so I, I found out that he was on television. I thought, well, what, what is, what's the monk been doing since? And now, this is, again, back in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, just before Big Finish started using the monk all the time. And I can tell you, the monk was very underused. You've got him in those two television stories. Nothing until 1983 when he shows up in four-dimensional vistas with the Fifth Doctor. After four years or so after the death of Peter Butterworth. Um, in 1989, there's a comic called um, Follow That Tardis, where the Seventh Doctor meets the monk. Um, there is No Future, the last book in the, in the alternative universe cycle of the Virgin Novels. Seventh Doctor again meets the monk. There's a short story about the Seventh Doctor having just met the monk called uh, The Tramp Story, I believe, from a Short Trips. Probably from a while ago. There's a Fifth Doctor short story where he meets someone that probably is the monk. Fifth Doctor and Perry. Um, One Faithful Night, which was uh, the Short Trips' attempt to do... Monks now started to become many. Their attempt to do um, a sequel to Battlefield, so Eighth Doctor, the character of Merlin, who's another Time Lord, and frankly, it's a little silly. I think that's intended to be the monk. Um, a version of the monk shows up in the Quantum Archangel. Um, and I'm really racking my brain if there's anything else. I'm talking about something before Big Finish started using the monk. I don't think so. I don't believe so. so I'm re we're really going to the weeds here, you know. It's like war, yeah. And and so, I, 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 uh, what, but no matter what, I realize okay, there's a big gap though. Okay, you've got William Hartnell, and, and if you include all the other stuff which I do, you got a, a stuff with Hartnell, and then you have stuff with Davison. Well, there's a really big gap in between. Essentially, the '70s, mid '60s to mid '80s. Fifth, um, you know, 17-ish years of quote-unquote history. What, what's the monk doing in the Trouton years, the, the Perchway years, the Tom Baker years? I mean, it, I think it's a, almost a tragedy that two men that look almost alike and have very similar styles, Patrick Trouton and Peter Butterworth, never met on screen. Definitely, yeah. Can you imagine? You could have them swapping costumes, you know? Or something like that. So, and I like trilogies. I like the idea of a trilogy. I love trilogies. I figure if something happens once, one and done, fine. 
If something happens twice and there's the door left open for a second of further appearances, I feel you're almost obligated to do a third appearance. In the case of the monk, had he only appeared once, and really when you think about it, had he only appeared once, then it would be the perfect way, the way that Time Meddler ends. It would be per uh, the perfect uh, door, way to open up a door to feature the monk now. It's like you sh maybe the monk's been trapped on Earth for a thousand years, and then he shows up, and oh my gosh, Dr. Yuan, but the problem is there's the Dalek's master plan, where he overcomes that, and the last thing you see of him is he's just walking back into his TARDIS on, trapped on that ice planet. He's not even trapped. That's the, the fundamental, in my opinion, not flaw, but maybe misconception of no future, is in no future, the monk says, well, I was trapped on the ice planet for so long. I said, no, you weren't. You, you, you simply could, you, you lost your directional unit, not your dematerialization unit. You could leave any time. You just were, you were, what does he say? I'm now, I'm, I'm fated to wander as lost in time and space as the doctor is. So he can leave any time. So, and now I say, we'll probably, maybe a while, but I'm sure we'll possibly see him again. Well, I wanted to do a third monk story with the, with the first doctor and the Butterworth monk. Sadly, both men are long gone, but, um, the origins for this, that's the back history. I, ooh, quite a long time ago, after Time's Champion, though, um, it was probably around 2010, I wrote, I, I, I started getting the idea of, of I want this idea, I want to do a third monk story with the first Doctor. And so I happened to come across an article in the news at the time that they discovered a, what they call, exo, uh, scientists had discovered an exoplanet. Exoplanets are faraway planets that might have Earth-like conditions, but they're very far away, often very large, and have strange properties. And they just, there was a discovery of a planet called WASP-112b, which is a real exoplanet. So, this is, so the misshapen planet is real. It exists out there in the universe. And what it is is a world that's... Um, it is a planet that's, that is, is orbiting a red giant. And, it's, and the planet's... Uh, um, is in a decaying orbit, so it's getting closer and closer to its sun. And as it gets closer and closer, this planet is spinning faster and faster and faster. And so the gravity is so intense upon, um, acting upon this planet that's actually being pulled out of shape. So this planet's no longer a spheroid, it's, it's uh, like an ellipse, elliptoid. It's actually, a, it is, there is literally a misshapen planet. So I thought to myself, well, that's cool. And so then the thought came to me, well, let's just use that. The monk my, is meddles with history. Well, let's explore exactly why, what would make this planet, this real planet, in do, now in, do, in Doctor Who terms, uh, become the misshapen planet. And so that really wrote the story in a way that, you know, when the Doctor and um, Stephen and Dodo arrive, it's a normal-looking world. In fact, it's a very beautiful world, as orbiting a blue, a, a blue star. A very young world, a young star. So what causes it? And that, of course, happens in the, the story. Um, uh, so that's that's how the that that's how the story came about. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of the cast, uh, how easy was it to find uh, actors who could voice the first Doctor or the Monk and and Stephen and Dodo? No, no. In so, uh, like like with the final game, you know, depending on the character uh, and the actor. Um, Dodo was easy to find, uh, be Zoe Jenkins, because she had done uh, some voice work for the final game. She plays Lieutenant 
or lieutenant, as I would say, Samantha Thompson, the uh, the female officer from Spearhead from Space, who be appears at the very beginning of, of Part 1. She, uh, one of the three unit ladies. She, Corporals Bell and um, uh, Hawk. Um, so Zoe had done that that role, and so uh, I asked, she did a wonderful voice, and I said, hey, do you think you could try Dodo? She said, yes, she does. Um, and uh, I think she really captures Jackie Lanes, who sadly now passed away. Um, um, she really captured her voice very well. I mean, see, when you think about it, Zoe Jenkins is probably, probably the first voice actress to, to play Dodo, <laughs> even before Big Finish, when you think about it, uh, which is, which is kind of cool, because Big Finish, they've announced a lady, Lauren Collins, I think is her name, um, or something, but, but, um, she had, they haven't, yeah, I think so, yeah. but they haven't released her, the story yet, so look forward to what she does, but, but Zoe, Zoe as Dodo was easy to find, um, Christopher Kovalenko, that was an interesting thing, I met him at, uh, church, um, uh, we were just talking, and, and I, uh, and, and, he, and I said, what are you doing, and he said, oh, I'm between jobs right now, I said, well, what, what are you doing to keep fun? I'm really trying to break into voice acting. I thought, oh, well, you know what? I do, <laughs> I, 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 I do some, vo I do some uh, vo uh, audio plays. Um, do you think I I'm in need of a guy that can do a sound of, uh, could sound like s this character? And he said, oh, sure, let, let me hear how he sounds. And so he, he, he recorded this, and my gosh, he sounds like Peter Purvis. He really, have you, have you listened to this story? Yeah, yeah, it's um, all, all four of the voices are very good, but yeah, he um, in particular really captures that character, doesn't he? To the point where Peter Purvis himself um, reached out to um, our sound designer Gareth um, Gareth Severn and said, "He sounds like me," so that that made Gareth's day and that made my day. So we kind of got a thumbs up from Peter Purvis. Uh, so that was yeah, that was wonderful. I think I think he was on Facebook, but um, so the, um, so it was easy, good to find Christopher. Sean Hughes, and it was interesting because we went through a couple different people. I was trying to find someone that sounded like, you know, the first doctor, and uh, one guy, a couple guys, people had to withdraw from the project. They were busy or such. We got another guy. I should shout out to a guy named Owen McEwen, who was go who recorded for the role. Um, but because of his schedule, we he had, there are recordings of him that exist. And he said, did a wonderful job. But because of his schedule, I this is before we started releasing the episodes. I said, I said to him, well, tell you what, because you probably won't be able to do anything more with us, and we plan to use the first Doctor in other stories. Will you mind if we cast another person to take the role and move forward, and then, and then if you want to do other stuff with us, um, feel free. Of course, this is nothing against how you sound. And no, it's just we know that. We, we're going to have other stories and to keep the consistency and I know that you and so that you don't feel like you you're letting us down or anything let's move on with someone else but keep you for reserves for other characters and such and he and he was very and he kind of asked that anyway so we that's what happened so there was almost another person who did the role but he, his schedule would allow other stories so we're just keeping consistency we start afresh and so we got Sean Hughes I just found him on YouTube oh I, well, I should say Gareth did and um Gareth uh, Severn did, and he said, "Hey, this guy sounds great." So we, I did, and Sean is wonderful. He's a he's a Liverpool uh, what do you call it? Liverpoolian? Is that the term? Uh, Liverpoolian. Liverpoolian. Excuse me. Uh, Liverpoolian. He's from Liverpool, uh, and he very wonderful, strong Liverpool accent. Uh, but he sounds amazing, like William Hartnell, incredibly so. 
Um, so he's great. He does other voices too, but his William Hartnell is amazing. And so it's a very strong voice cast. Um, you could argue in a certain ways it's quote unquote, I don't want to say stronger than the final game, but it's, it's a, it's just more concentrated in that you, you can focus on just the fewer actors because it's a very small cast. It really is just five. It's the doctor, Sean Hughes, um, Stephen Tabler, Christopher Kovalenko, Dodo, um, Chaplet, Zoe Jenkins, the monk, Pete Lutz, and then Pardock the Board Overlord by Jerry Kokic. Uh, I should talk then about the monk. Um, Pete Lutz is an American. He's, uh, I don't think he's from Texas, but he lives in Texas now. Um, but he's an American. And he was the only person uh, who, he reached out to me because I just put it out there on these sites. Hey, can anyone do a sound like this guy? Because Peter Butterworth was a legend in his time, very famous, but you know, he has been gone now for more than four, more than 40 years. And, um, and this story, like with the final game, I wanted to find someone, just like the final game celebrates 100 years of Roger Delgado, this story, The Misshaped Planet, is celebrating 100 years of, of Peter Butterworth. The irony, of course, is that um, the, the idea was that I was under the assumption that, that Peter Butterworth was born in 1919 and died about two weeks shy of his 60th birthday in 1979. Now, that is when he died. But we've since discovered from, um, as he was a prisoner of war in a German concentration camp, um, these prisoner of war records have been discovered that reveal that his birthday was actually 1915. So he was actually about 64 when he died. So, so a hundred years, four years too late. <laughs> but it still celebrates the centennial. It celebrates Peter Butterworth's life. And so I wanted to find someone that could sound very much like him. But it's, you know, if you do a voice search, voice search on YouTube or something, you will find people that are John Pertwee, voice actors like Marshall Tankersley or Sean Hughes for William Hartnell or Christopher, um, Chris Thompson Walker for, um, Chris Walker Thompson for Patrick Trout. Plenty of people, various doctors, more or less, but some of the doctors, yes, a lot. Um, and you'll find people that can do different voices. River Song, that voice actress is. You're not going to find anybody that's a Peter Butterworth actor, voice actor. I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find anybody. Um, because really, it's kind of true that he's from a different era. And in terms of Doctor Who, he's even, you could argue, he's more obscure than Roger Delgado was the master. Because he comes from such an early time in the show. And never returned. And he died still relatively early in Doctor Who's run. And so, but, and he, when he died, he hadn't been on the show for 13 years. So... The, he pro it's, it, it's, it's the saddest thing that when you think about it that some of these great actors that were great men and, and, and had great personal histories like, I mean, Peter Butterworth was a war hero he helped, uh, you know the, he helped many prisoners of war escape he actually helped them escape from the, these prison camps and escaped himself, he had an incredible life but um, in terms of being remembered yes, of course he is but in terms of Doctor Who, he died just probably before just before Doctor Who started making over to America, just before the conventions really started exploding. Um, Roger Delgado, of course, died before, really before the conventions started. The, but the tough thing is that Butterworth died when the conventions were just, it sounds like, just starting to happen. Had he lived maybe a few more years, I can guarantee you he would have been a guest of honor to, if, if, he were, if he were willing to go. I'm sure he would have been a guest of honor at some of those things. And he, the first time I've ever seen. But he died in 1979. And so... It, 
there is that kind of um it's like a latent memory. He's a latent memory in Doctor Who. Oh yeah, well, the monk, yeah. People know who the monk is, but they they know now probably more Rufus Hound. Or um or such, maybe Graham Garden, even though he's a while ago. But it's like, but yeah, but who played him back then? Oh, I don't know. Some guy, Peter Butterworth. Well, I just put it out there. I said, hey, can someone sound like this guy, Peter Butterworth? Well, it's another man named Peter shows up. Pete Lutz. He says, I think I can try. And he did, and he sounds wonderful. Oh, my gosh. It, I, I beam when I listen to his stuff. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Better than I could have imagined when you get Sean Hughes and Pete Lutz together as, as Hartnell and Butterworth. It's like, oh, my gosh. This is this is glorious, um, and then I should mention then Jerry Kokich. He's a friend from California. What he has, he's had an amazing life too. He's a professional um, ballet dancer, and he he was in a he was one of the premier ballet dancers in the premier companies in the country. He performed for the um, as a young man. He performed performed for the White House during the Ronald Reagan years. So that gives you a sense of his quality and his troops' quality. So they were they were the they're the top level. So he was a top level ballerina, ball, ballet dancer, ballerina dancer. I don't know what the male term would be, but ballet dancer certainly. And he just has this beautiful voice, um, and um, he has this wonderful voice, and he um, uh, just plays the role wonderfully and beautifully. And he so sounds wonderfully menacing as Pardock. The brother to Yartek, and if you listen to Big Finish audios, Tarlac from the audio domain of the Vord. So it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun hearing these stories, and hearing them together. It's great, yeah. Like you say, for for the monk, um, very much the mannerisms, like the giggles and the uh, the, the things like that that um, that Peter Butterworth had in his performance, um, and and for Pardock, like you say. Um, there's scenes where a couple of times where you don't realize he's in the room and then he's got such a deep booming voice when he just cuts into the conversation and uh, it's quite startling and it's really, really effective. So yeah, the, um, the voices are really, really good. I think I agree. They're, they're wonderful. And, and, um, and I've really enjoyed the, the cast and how they all operate. And um, it was fun setting the story when I did, when I, where it is, which is shortly just before the savages. Um, partly because that's the only place where you can set story with Dodo and, and Stephen. I had originally thought of setting the story um, only with Dodo, so after the savages, uh, between the savages and the war machines. But then I thought to myself, I'm robbing myself of the chance for some good companion conflict because Stephen's already met the monk a couple times, and so he can have he brings his mistrust of the monk, not hatred of the monk, but mistrust certainly and antagonism, antagonism towards the monk. And then you have Dodo, and I figured Dodo probably would get along with the monk a lot, which she does in the story. So you have one command that doesn't trust him, another that does, and they can kind of deconstruct Stephen's views of the monk because, if, you know, Stephen's saying, oh, he, he caused us so much trouble and when, he, when he showed up again. What did he do? He locked us out of the TARDIS. <laughs> what did, oh, he tried to kill you? No, he just locked us out of the TARDIS. And then he was wrapped up as a mummy and then the, the big laughs, you know, because you realize, yeah, it's... He's not a bad guy. He just causes trouble. So it was a lot of fun, and um, it was great. It was great setting the story kind of in the darker back end of the third of the first Doctor's era. You know, after the Dalek Master Plan, after the massacre, after these or the Ark, these darker stories. Um, it was a lot of fun. A whole lot of fun to do. It's a joy to and joy to make. And we've got one more episode being made right now, and coming soon. We hope very soon. 
probably at this point sometime in August. We'll see, but hopefully very soon. That was great, yeah. That was going to be my, my next question is when, when will the next episode be out? Because uh, the third one ends on quite a cliffhanger. So uh, very much looking forward to that. Oh, yes. And I'll give you... Uh, I can say this little hint that what well, fun little thing is that the the, um, the Misshapen Planet will link to a couple other stories in fun ways. Um, and there's a, little, there's a nice little surprise at the end. Uh, there may or may not be a uh, uh, post-title sequence. You'll see. <laughs> Very good. And then what's next? What um, I, I see on Twitter that you're uh, auditioning for, for other parts and things like that. Which which story will be next? Well, up next is another um, lost story, from this time from the Colin Baker era. And I've already mentioned it here, is Yellow Fever and How to Cure It. Ooh, the long-awaited uh, 1985 story from the original season 23. This story slots in between um, the ultimate evil and Mission to Magnus. Um, so the Doctor and Perry are, are headed to Mallorca at the end of the Ultimate Evil, and the TARDIS is still working perfectly when they inter uh, encounter an exotic energy signal back on, on Earth, and so they end up uh, they think that they end up in um, New York because they can see a picture of the Statue of Liberty on the TARDIS scanner, but they end up in a, but they're actually in Singapore in kind of a decorative garden, uh, but the uh, decorative statues are moving, so uh, cool stuff. The Master, of course, is there. The Ronnie's there. The Autons are there. The Brigadier is there. Um, um, and no joke, so is the Sonic Screwdriver. <laughs> There's a little thing you should know, probably, that I've, I've made the executive decision that whenever I have, as much as I can, allowing the fifth and sixth Doctor stories, they'll have the Sonic Screwdriver. I just, I am aware of which stories say that they don't have it, so I work around. But uh, yeah, five and six have the Sonic Screwdriver. And are there any parts that you're still looking to cast for upcoming stories? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, we have, after Yellow Fever Not a Cure, we've got the Sarah Jane Adventures, Series 5, Volume 2. So that's the three unmade stories uh, with the passing of Elizabeth Sladen 10 years ago. So these are Meet Mr. Smith, 13th Floor, and the Battle of Bannerman Road. We have various parts, of course, um, still needing uh, um, complete uh, needing voice actors. Um, really mostly for the last story, um, excuse me, the Battle of Bannerman Road. We, we may need voice actresses, I'm not sure, we may need voice actresses to play the roles of Carla Langer and Gita, um, Chandra. Um, because they show up in a couple, well, Gita shows up, actually they all, they show up in all three stories, actually. Um, with varying size parts, but yeah, all three. So we may need those characters, um... We'll, um, we certainly will need probably voice actresses for like Martha Jones, Mickey Smith, and such. Um, cameo appearances. Um, maybe Kate Stewart. <laughs> but for larger roles going forward, uh, yes, I need I need voice actresses that can take the roles of, like Tegan Javanka, Nissa, uh, Polly, um, Ben Jackson, of course, Tolo. Um, let's see, probably Sergeant Benton. Um, yeah, because, you know, we need a new voice actor for Sergeant Benton. It's too bad, but Richard Girl, who did the, the voice for in the uh, Benton in the final game, he's unavailable now. He did a great job, but his schedule is different now. So, yeah, I need, there are quite a few voices we need. Um, I'm looking for a voice actors that can take on various uh, master roles. So we'll need... Uh, I'm especially looking for, uh, looking for people that can do the voice of the Jeffrey Beaver's master. Um... Uh, also, um, for the War Chief, 
Edward Brayshaw's voice, the war chief, uh, for, for various reasons. <laughs> I'll tell you about those afterwards really quickly. Um, anyone else? Um, uh, really anyone that can do, um, probably some of the, yeah, it's like Victorian Zoe thing and such. Ja uh, we've got Jamie, I think, yeah. Um, well, eventually we'll need someone to do the voice of the Valleyard. That's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I would say we also need uh, voice actors that can do probably the later Doctors. We're talking Sylvester McCoy onwards. Uh, I haven't written stories for them yet, but I, I plan to do that. So, plenty of voices out there, definitely. So if any of our listeners uh, are interested in that, is the best thing to do is follow at Studio Glove on Twitter and, and look for your um, call-outs for, for the parts on there. Yes, exactly, yes. Fantastic. That's great. That all sounds very exciting. I will put links in the show notes to uh, so where you can order Times Champion and where you can hear the Misshapen Planet uh, and to the Twitter feed to look out for any casting calls. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so we'll you know we'll keep it going and uh, and uh, we'll have a lot of we have a lot of good stories ahead. I'll throw out some titles for you. Um, things like uh, the Haunting of Zarephas, um, the Andrigam Inheritance. Um, the Master Requiem Trilogy, <laughs> um, Reformation, the Daleks, uh, the Journal, oh, well, that might give it too much away, but <laughs> the Journal of Someone, well, I'll just say it, the Journal of Dastari, that's gonna be fun, <laughs> the Journal of Dastari, uh, the Tablet of Destiny, uh, the Shards of Mondas, ooh, that's good, the Ancestor Weave, um, you know, good stuff like that. Good stuff like that. And of course, you know, Time's Champion, it's related stories. So we have a lot of good things coming um, with all the Doctors. It's going to be a lot of fun what's coming up. And of course, the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. <laughs> that's, that's still on the horizon. You know about that one, right? Oh yeah, we'll have to talk about that one in more detail. But that's a, I'm, I'm, that's, we're in the post-production phase. It's slow going, of course, you know, but uh, we're, we're, um, it's happening. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Fantastic. Well, that all sounds like it's going to keep you very busy. It'll be very busy. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, so, is the best place for our listeners to find you on Twitter? Is that at Studio Glove? Yes. At Studio Glove. That's great. So, uh, yep, look out for um, announcements and links on there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Quark McMalice. You can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore and find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a star rating on iTunes if you'd be so kind. Uh, thanks again, Chris. Thank you so much for having me again. You're very welcome. And thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>